I have a feeling it's going to be a day where I'm going to need some tissues. <coughs> so, we are continuing on, ladies. Thank you for persevering <laughs> through our study of Matthew, chapters 18 to 20 today. And this is the fourth discourse of Jesus that's given in the book. And it's all about discipleship, all about what it's like to live as part of his kingdom community. And I think you've heard it said before <laughs> that the problem with churches is that they're full of people, right? People are peopley. And so I think one, one of the things I really want to highlight this morning is that we're all just sheep in desperate need of a shepherd, in desperate need of a shepherd. And whenever we think of the Christian life, we cannot think of it as just a personal relationship with God, just our own walk with Jesus. We always have to think of it as a we, that we are part of the church. We're living in community, and that's what God calls us to. And, and he knows how badly that we need each other. We're seeing it this morning, right, as we're gathering and praying for dear Julie and her nephew, right? We need one another in this life. And so the church is a, is a gift to us. And as we do this life in the community, our lives are to be highlighted by humility and forgiveness. Would you open your Bibles with me to chapter 18 of Matthew? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be greater for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So when, she, when the disciples asked, who is the greatest? Jesus' example is a little child. The child was the smallest, the least significant in that time. And we're reminded that Jesus' kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. <laughs> Where what he thinks is great is opposite of what would be the greatest in our world. There's this call to true discipleship. And this example given in a child. Jesus says, humble yourselves like this child. Know that you are a lowly one. Children are weak and vulnerable, completely dependent upon their parents' care. And so Jesus is celebrating weakness and defenselessness and the humility of children in contrast to the disciples who are seeking to be the greatest, seeking power and promotion. We find in the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 113, if you have a chance, you can read that, that our God is a God that stoops down to help the lowly in this world, the poor and the needy. 
And Peter, James, and John have just seen the true glory of Jesus, right? He's the, the one who's exalted above all, the great and glorious one. And yet he has lowered himself to become human, to live amongst the poor, to offer his life for the sinners of this world. So Jesus is saying once again that if you wish to enter his kingdom, don't grasp for power, don't elevate yourself, don't seek for the whole world to revolve around you, which is all, what we're always tempted to do, right? But we are to humble ourselves and to call out for God's mercy. We are to live this life as children of God who know that we get in trouble if we try to lead our lives, if we try to go our own way. Knowing that we are completely dependent on God, not only to save us, but to sustain us continually. We are ones that come with empty hands, with nothing, nothing to offer, and Jesus gives us everything. So right at the heart of Christian life and community is to be humility, Jesus' kingdom could be de defined or described as a humility revolution, right? In contrast to those in power in Rome, right? Who, who ruled with force, who lorded over other people. Jesus says, walk in humility in my upside down kingdom. Timothy Keller says that the Christian gospel says that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And yet, I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This should lead us to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I, we are not to feel superior to anyone, and yet, we shouldn't feel as if we have to prove anything to everyone. After all, right, we're all sheep. He says that we are not to think more of ourselves or less of ourselves. We are to think of ourselves less. Jesus concludes this example of bringing the child in their midst by saying it would be better to drown in the sea than to cause a little one to sin. And I would say that the little ones are the children, right? We are supposed to, to lead and love the children well. And yet the little ones are also those who have come to God begging for his mercy. And so both the children and his followers, God is watching over them and says that anyone that comes against his own, they will not go unpunished. Jesus goes on to warn against temptations. And he's making it clear that all efforts must be made to keep ourselves from sin. He uses hyperbole when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We are not to take sin lightly. We are to be reminded of our sinful nature that kills us and wreaks havoc on the people around us. 
as those who are called to be the community of salt and light in this world. Our lives are to be set apart and to look different from those that are not living in Jesus' kingdom community. And hallelujah, Jesus empowers us and gives us this, the spirit to convict us, right? To show us new ways to walk. To live in ways that are bringing light and salt in this world. And I would ask you this morning, if you are aware of a sin in your life that you're battling right now, plead with the Lord. Ask the Lord to help you to turn from it. By his spirit, he can empower you to do so. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew 18, talks about the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think Jesus is continuing to answer the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of, he of heaven? And he's saying here, it's just the one lost sheep, who is the one who's lost its way, a believer who's gone astray. Our Father and Jesus, the good shepherd, care for and seek out the lost sheep. Is there someone in your life today that you've been praying for who seems lost? Know that the Father's heart is right there with yours seeking out that wayward one. And then we're encouraged in this process of restoring our brothers and sisters in verses 15 to 20. And we see here that Jesus is teaching that in his kingdom community, we are to practice forgiveness and reconciliation with his heart of love and mercy. After all, we're all sheep. We all have the tendency to go astray. He gives clear instructions on how to pursue a wayward sheep. We don't act as if the situation is not happening right? We go to that person privately. If that encouragement or challenge is not received, then we bring a few more to come around, not with the intention to condemn or to judge, but with the intention to, to offer mercy and to restore that brother. And then if that person continues to reject that word, that offer of mercy, then it can be brought before the church community. And I think we're all sheep, and we're all going to have season, times in our lives where we need someone to come alongside us.
us and say, oh, honey, this path that you're on, it's leading in a dangerous, to a dangerous place. Would we be ones that are willing to receive that correction? And would we have the courage when it's someone that's close to us, right? That's someone that's dear to us, not just somebody that you just, oh, found out about a struggle that's going on in your, their lives, but someone that's in your close circle, that you would be willing to say, oh, dear one, I'm concerned. Jesus is saying we all need accountability. And when he says, treat the unrepentant brother as a Gentile or tax collector, it means one who's considered to be rebelling against God. Let them go. But even then, it's with the hope and prayer and longing and desire that they would be re returned to the Lord and be restored into the community. And Jesus says, what you bind or loose on earth is done in heaven. Authority is given to the church to make decisions regarding its wayward members. But they are to seek Jesus, right? Direction in that. And Jesus is present as they seek his heart um, in a process of, of seeking to restore a brother or sister. And then we go on to see the parable of the unforgiving debtor. In verse 21 of chapter 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him, as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When Peter asked Jesus about how many times he should forgive someone who sins against them, 
He thinks he's being generous by offering seven times. You see, in Judaism, it was considered enough if you were to forgive a person three times. But Jesus says, oh no, Peter, 77 times. And in other words, he means forgive without ever keeping count. Forgive more than you can ever imagine. In this parable, the king forgave the servant a huge debt, 60 million days of wages. And then that man who'd been forgiven so abundantly was joking a man for just 100 days wages. If you translated the the currency of 10,000 talents to to modern day money, it would be $6 billion. We can't even comprehend that, that much money. We can't comprehend the huge debt that we all have been set free from in Jesus. It's a debt that's way too much to count, a debt that could never be repaid. In Jesus, we have oceans. We've been given oceans of mercy. Moment by moment, day after day, his mercies are new every morning. It comes in wave upon wave upon wave. We're swimming in it. You know, we're swimming in it and we lose sight of that. We forget the huge debt that we've been set free from. And when we forget, we have a hard time just offering a little bit, a little drink of mercy to the people around us. Jesus is saying, oh, dear ones, my kingdom people are to be known for their mercy. What should be flowing out of our hearts but the mercy that he's abundantly given to us? When you begin to really experience it, he says, oh, you're going to long to give it to every single person that you meet. We are to long for all people to know the mercy of Jesus, especially the wayward sheep. And then in Matthew 19, we see Jesus talking about just every, when, when we're called to follow him, it affects every area of our lives. He talks about marriage and children and money. And in verses 1 to 12, he teaches on marriage and divorce. Once again, the religious leaders are coming to him and trying to cause trouble for him. You see, there were some religious leaders that held to that that there could only be divorce when there was infidelity. And there were some other religious leaders that tended to go with the pattern of the culture that, oh, if a man just issued a notice of divorce, He could move on just on a whim. 
One commentator says that if he, she prepare, his wife prepares a bad meal, he could divorce her. And Jesus begins by talking about the beautiful design that God has for marriage, a lifelong union, a sacred union between one man and one woman where God does this amazing thing and he makes two become one. And he says, yes, there is a provision given when infidelity takes place. There's a provision for divorce given. And it's given to protect the injured party. Paul would go on to say that there's another provision. It's for believers who have unbelieving spouses that choose divorce. I believe back then, every day in between, and, and now today, <clears throat> this world gives us messages that are very, very different than what God gives us regarding marriage. We're told that we are to pursue our own happiness no matter what. We're told that people can fall in and out of love. I heard an interview just in this last week of Amy, from Amy Grant, and she was reflecting on a difficult season in her life she said, the dark tunnel of divorce for me lasted for 10 years. She said, I confess that I was lost. She was a wayward sheep. She said, all kinds of behavior took place when I was in that tunnel. She said, I got to the point where I could see no value left in my marriage or I had somehow lost the ability to value it. She said, life had just given me too much of everything, too much success, too much time apart, too much competition between me and my husband. She said, I was drinking and eating guilt every single day during that 10-year time period. And she said, I had a friend who came alongside me and encouraged me to trust that every hard lesson that was coming to me and to all of the dear ones who my choices had affected, to trust that these things, these trials, these lessons would bring about a unique toolkit for each one of us that we would need for the adventure of our lives. So I guess I have a word for those of you that are married today. I want to remind you that marriage is not for your own happiness, but it's for your holiness. Make it a priority. Don't be one of the ones that just says, oh, we grew apart. We really didn't have a marriage left anymore. Remember that it's not your husband's job to fulfill you. 
Seek to bless him and bring good to him every day. Seek to be the, the wife that God desires you to be. I'm sorry, but we've all been around women who all they do is complain about their husbands. And they're not willing to look at their own lives and what they're bringing to the relationship. Also, be reminded that your marriage is to be a mission. That when other people in this world look at your marriage, they are to see the example of the relationship between Christ and the church. They are to see what sacrificial love looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what endurance and perseverance looks like. And for those of you that are divorced, I want to encourage and bless you today. Whether or not your divorce came about because of the provisions that God has made for it in his word, there is mercy for you. It is. Oceans of mercy. If you come to Jesus seeking his mercy, God does not choose which sins to cover and which ones not to. If you are holding on to shame or guilt, I encourage you to put those at the feet of the cross today. For those that, of you that are single or widowed, may you find Jesus in every moment, knowing that his goodness and his mercy follow you all the days of your life. Do not ever think that you are somehow less than because you are single. You are valuable, and God has great purpose for you in this world. He knows your heart, and he is with you, there to strengthen you, to cheer you on, and to lead you in the beautiful plans that he has for you specifically. And then we see Jesus blessing the children. And once again, he's saying, the little ones are the greatest. He puts his hands upon them and blesses them. And we're reminded to love and to lead our children well. And then we're also reminded that children are the symbol of humility required to enter God's kingdom. And we're reminded that Jesus cares for all the little ones in this world. In his time, he cared for women and children who were ones that were considered at the bottom, right, of the social ladder. He cared for sinners and tax collectors, the poor, the sick, the outcasts, the brokenhearted. May we be ones like him who see and take time for, right? The disciples wanted to rush the children away. Oh, Jesus didn't have time for them. Would we take time for and care for and bless the ones that are considered the little ones in this world? And then we have this passage where the young rich man approaches Jesus.
And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. And the young man said to him, I have all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many he had great possessions. This young man is trying to earn his way into the kingdom. What good deed do I need to do? And Jesus tells him the last five of the Ten Commandments and then the second of the two greatest commandments. And somehow this young man thinks that he's kept them all. In Mark's version of this story, in Mark 10, especially verse 21, he reveals this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor so that you can have treasure in heaven and follow me. Jesus knows this man's heart just like he knows our hearts. He knows his deepest need is to turn from the earthly treasures that will never satisfy, that will never last, and to come and store up treasures in heaven by, having, by following Jesus. Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. Jesus sees into this man's heart and knows that his God is money. It's his possessions. Tim Keller defines an idol or a God as anything you seek to give you what only God can give. He says that our hearts are idol-making factories. Well, we take the good gifts that God has given to us and we make them ultimate in our lives. We put them above God. Idols will always disappoint us and they can enslave us. Money cannot give us life. The security and ease that money brings are temporary. Now some say, well, Jesus didn't ask all that came to him to sell everything that they had and give it to the poor and then follow him. But clearly, we need to, to see here that we are never to see money as our own and that we are to be ones that give generously to the poor. It's interesting to see that the disciples are absolutely astonished when Jesus said, oh, it's really gonna be challenging for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He uses a fun example of trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. And they are astonished because in their world, they thought that those were, that were blessed monetarily were the ones that were receiving God's blessing. So they think, who in the world then could enter God's kingdom? So I asked, we have to ask ourselves this morning, are there any idols on the throne in our hearts that are taking the place of God? It might be money, it might be something else. 
something to be praying on. I've given you a few extra passages as well because Jesus taught a lot about money. So a few things that you're welcome to jump into on your own. And then Jesus in Matthew 20 talks about true greatness in the kingdom community. He begins with the parable of the vineyard. Here, those who work all day represent the Pharisees. Those who receive a whole day's wage for just one hour's work are the sinners. The sinners, right? Religious, the religious leaders felt entitled, and Jesus is calling them out. He's saying, oh, all are undeserving of the, the grace and the mercy that, Jesus, that is offered in the kingdom. And here we see God's loving kindness highlighted, his hesed, which Michael Card defines as, when a person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Jesus wants us to never lose the wonder of the mercy that he so abundantly offers to us. And we're challenged here to remember that we are disillusioned whenever we elevate ourselves over others, thinking that somehow we're ahead of them, right? We are all broken and desperate for the mercy and grace that God gives to us. So in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, once again, we see that the last are first and the first are last. And then let's conclude with this last section in, in Matthew 20, beginning with verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Daniel 7, 3, 13 and 14, we see this name for Jesus, Jesus gives to himself here, the Son of Man. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, the Son of Man, who every single person from all time, from every nation, is supposed to serve, he's Lord over them all. He has come as a servant. 
and he will give his life as a ransom. Ransom was a payment given to set slaves free. Jesus, our king's throne, is a cross. So when his disciples ask to be on either side of him, it's a cup of suffering and sacrifice that they're asking for. Sometimes we're like James and John, and we want to be raised up, but we are called to follow Jesus in the lowly way of service. Because Jesus poured his life out for us, we are inspired then to pour out our lives in service to him. We are to be servants, not lords, to think of others before ourselves, to see those in need and respond with compassion, and to have the continual mindset that it's not about me, but it's about Jesus and his kingdom. At the end of Matthew 20, we see two blind beggars come to Jesus, and he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, open our eyes. Jesus heals them, and they follow him. We must see here that James and John had come to Jesus asking what he could do for them. And they were the true blind ones, blinded by their own ambition. But Jesus will open their eyes and make them new, and they will drink the cup of suffering and self-sacrifice that comes as they follow him. So those who have entered into the kingdom of heaven, who follow Jesus as their king, who live with God as their father, are to be humble, to resist sin, to seek to restore fellows, fellow believers who are struggling, are to be merciful, are to honor our marriages, are to value and bless children and all the little ones in this world. We're not to worship money and possessions. We are to know that we are saved by grace, such abundant grace. We are to be servants and we are to be given new eyes. So I ask you today, in what area do you need God to make your heart new? Do you need to help him to um, have him help you walk in hum humility or to offer mercy or to be a servant or to value your marriage? I trust that the Lord will speak to each heart today in Jesus', in Jesus name. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>